We are living in very interesting times. In fact, unparalleled times. Unprecedented times. In fact, we're living in times that were predicted many years ago. And as I said last night, and I'll be saying more this afternoon, because after all we are kind of shut in here a little bit with time, only Adventists know what I'm talking about. Only Adventists know how the end will come. Many, many people talk about the return of Jesus. In fact, the books about the return of Jesus on the bookshelves and in the supermarkets and everywhere are talking about the return of Jesus. But not like you and I understand the return of Jesus. We're not the only ones talking about the end of the world. But we're the only ones who know how it's going to end. And we are the only ones who know when it will end. And this afternoon, we'll talk about how I know when Jesus will return, and how you know as well. And then only Adventists know how it all gets sorted out when he comes. I assure you, no other group of people know how it will all end with who is where. Those are simple questions. And I say again, only Adventists know what I'm talking about. I don't want to say this boldly. It's not audacious. It's the simple facts. Not because we thought it up, but because it was given to us. Because we just have to read the Bible as it was meant to be read. As we listen to the messengers of the Lord throughout these pages. And the messenger of the Lord that God has given to us. To get us into the harbor as our harbor pilot. We'll never find the port unless we live in carefully to the messenger of the Lord. Now, when people don't see this big picture, they forever are oscillating back and forth between a certain measure of peace and, and, and anxiety. You do it. We all do it. We know what it's like. The anxiety of just plain living in this crazy world where you have to pay the rent. Living in this world where pensions are not what they used to be. The personal, pen, uh, personal uh, anxiety of watching a loved one die. Maybe you haven't seen it, but many people in this room have watched a loved one die. Someone very close to them. Their own health not holding up like they thought they would, you know. We all think that we're invulnerable, that we're impervious to these problems. But after you hit 60 and 70, you begin to look back and um, anxiety is everywhere. Political anxiety. Too many Advents are concerned about who's going to be elected next month. They listen to every broadcast. Who's up? Who's down? International crises. But we have a, an interesting fellow over there in Iran. And I remember listening to his speech a year ago, October 28th in the United Nations. Now, this year he had another one last month. This guy is good. 
He stood up there with all that marvelous, I don't know where he'd get that platform pizzazz. He talked, and this is what he said afterwards, and I'll tell you what he said in the meeting. He told the people that for 28 minutes, I talked to the United Nations, to the world, and nobody blinked. And his, his crowd around him said, and he had a aurora. He had that, that flash of light around him. We saw it. And he said in that address, I am just preparing the way for the 12th Iman, who is related to Mohammed. He is alive today. But the Iman is waiting for his time. He has a peace plan for this world. But before he comes, it will be an awful time of bloodshed and horror and war. But out of that, he'll have the peace of the, that the whole world is looking for. Now, I said, that's pretty good. That sounds so much like an Adventist scenario, except it's upside down. We have a police plan coming, too. And it's going to be an awful time before he comes. And now, last month, of course, we heard again his... We are living in fascinating times that no one in this room has ever seen even 25 years ago. 25 years ago, you would not have dreamed what you now are listening to. You would not have seen even the Internet. The Internet, never mind TV, has brought the world together like your next-door neighbor. Ten years ago, there was no such thing. You, nobody knew what the, even the word sounded like. We live in very interesting times. And these are times made to order for Seventh-day Adventists because we don't have to be anxious about any of these areas. Um, for so many reasons. We'll talk about that this afternoon. Because Adventists alone have the antidote for all these anxieties. Seventh-day Adventists arose on time on time, to be a movement, not a church. Every movement that arises, whatever the movement may be, crazy as some of them are, has a message and a mission. That's what defines a movement. The Adventist movement has a mission and message that is absolutely when we keep on understanding what it is, that is so different than any other movement. But when it becomes a church, we become satisfied with our records. Why we even have centennials? We even are so pleased that we've done so much in a hundred years. Of course, some of the centennials now are, are not just a hundred years. I've spoken 168-year centennials. And I'm asking the people... It's wonderful. We're still here. Are we supposed to be sad or happy? How do Adventists celebrate centennials? Well, that's another story too, isn't it? The Adventist movement is healthy when it remembers its twin mission. To prepare a world for the return of Jesus 
and to prepare a people to be translated. Not to live 10 years longer if they just get more exercise and eat right, but to be translated. That was what Adventists talked about 100 years ago. When was the last time you even heard that? Or even read it very often? Unless you've been reading my books. <laughs> the Adventist movement is healthy when it remembers its message embodied at least in one encapsulated chapter of Revelation 14. The good news that God has provided everything necessary to change rebels into willing sons and daughters who can be trusted to keep on being willing for the rest of their lives as time goes on and on. They've been so settled into the truth that their habit patterns will never again say no to God. It's just their habit. You have habits every day. Habits are wonderful things. I don't have to think every time I'm brushing my teeth, I'm doing the same way every day, two or three times a day. I put my feet in my trousers, one foot at a time. I don't think about it. It's when I work on my computer, thank God for habits. I don't have to think again where all the A and B and Cs are. Habits are wonderful. If they so sink into your grooves, in your neural pathways, that's good news. And of course, we often can develop bad habits, and they're just as grooved. What I'm trying to say is that the end of all of our Adventist thinking is that rebels will not stand on the sea of glass. It's just that simple. If you keep that in your frontal cortex, right behind, about an inch behind my finger, rebels will not stand on the sea of glass. That will help you every day with all your decisions. What kind of light are you kind of uh, trying to make believe it's not there? Or how kind of light, I'll do that next week. Or I'm not old enough. Or uh, I haven't, well, I'm not ready yet to get into all that light. Those boutons are developing. And you can't get rid of your boutons. You just better get more positive boutons to overcome them. The early Christian church, whoa, whoa, mistake, erase. The early Christian movement knew just about what I was talking about. It remained healthy just as long as it guarded, respected the Lord's messengers, whether they're from Genesis to Malachi or, or the new messengers in their earliest years, Paul and James and Peter. But when you forsake or you begin to question or you kind of have other ways to look at the absolutes in life, if you still want to believe in absolutes, something begins to happen to a movement. And as I said earlier, the Adventist message is at its healthiest when it remembers, respects, and listens carefully to the Lord's messenger sent to this church as the harbor pilot to lead us into that port that we call forever. 
we're not at our healthiest when we don't listen carefully. Now, this is a preamble, isn't it? Because Adventists think differently about theology. Believe me. Maybe some of you haven't had too much theology. You're, you're really into the medical area of life. But you think, you should be thinking differently about theology. We do not build on the theology of a great leader. The Lutherans? Luther. The Presbyterian Reformed Church? Calvin. Although they had a better start, the Wesleyans built upon Wesley. Of all the so-called reformers, he was the sharpest. He was the clearest. And yet, God had to have a movement develop that would undo or rectify or clear up what even the greatest theologians had been trying to say for many years. And that's our job. To bring back the everlasting gospel. Not your assignment in Revelation 14. The everlasting gospel. Not the gospel of the Reformation. Every time we are told that we are to be respecting the Reformation, yes. But we have Reformation theology and that's what is central. To what? Which one should I be responding to? Should I listen to Luther? Or Calvin? Or Zwingli? Wesley? I go right down the list. You'll be going every which way if you're trying to follow a Reformation theologian. God had to have a cleanup day. Someday a movement will arise and bring back the everlasting gospel. And that's what cleans up the picture at the end of time. Now, Adventists build on the God that is unfolded in the great controversy theme. Of course, Calvin and, and Luther and Wesley and all the rest of these wonderful men, brave as they were, but every one of them developed a theology on the basis of their picture of God. Your picture of God is giving you a way of looking at the universe. And as I said last night, many Adventists have a very limited view of God. They have kind of a mixed up Calvin Lutheran God. Most of the systematic theologies that I know I studied at the seminary and hundreds and hundreds of Adventist preachers were, were Calvinistic theologies, but we didn't know that that had any special significance because we didn't really know at that time that that systematic theologian was looking at a God that was so limited compared to the God that we know to be there because of the Adventist way of looking at him. Now you're going to say, man, what is he talking about? And that takes a weekend in itself just to talk about what kind of God is running the universe. Except you do have a pretty good picture. And this forces us to think differently about every different Bible subject. We would think, because we're Adventists, because we have an everlasting gospel, we talk about grace differently than other denominations. 
we talk about faith differently. I'm getting pretty kindergartenish now, but that one word faith, just faith, has divided Christianity into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different groups. That one word. And then, if you start to get that right, then you're beginning to see that, whoa, maybe my understanding of faith is not correct. Every single Protestant church in this world, including our own, has great divisions in understanding what grace is. Now, if we had time, we would say, what's he talking about? It's just fun to look at, well, grace is the greatest word that we could ever put our mind into if you got the big picture. But you don't understand grace unless you understand the great controversy theme, which I went into last night somewhat. And uh, you got another 15, 20 minutes this afternoon. Remember, I thought maybe you're sitting there too long on a Friday night, so we stopped it, and I'm going to continue with the PowerPoint at 4 o'clock. I'll say this much. Until you understand grace to be whatever you need, if you're looking for forgiveness, he has the grace to forgive. If you look for personal ability and power, capacity to overcome what you keep asking forgiveness for, you want power to do what God wants you to do, that's grace. Hebrews 4.16, whatever you need in the time of trouble. Grace is power and grace is forgiveness. Simple, isn't it? It divides the whole Christian church. You say, how can, how can something so simple be so confusing? Because Satan is very good at what he does. He has had so much practice. And I've written several books on just what I'm talking about because it, it, it gets interesting to see all the ramifications of how you can go wrong and how you can go right. And that book we emphasized last night, God at Risk, has just a lot of this in it. So what is the heart of the Adventist message? What, what is the Adventist main thesis? Because if every systematic theology begins with a picture of God, what is our picture of God? Just that simple. Well, you look at God as you see him developed in the great controversy theme. God is not the person that Satan has made him out to be. Now that takes quite a while to discuss that because you can begin with Shintoism in Japan or Buddhism in most of the eastern countries or the God of Martin Luther, the God of John Calvin the god of voodoo. It's fascinating just to have a collection, it would take quite a book too, of what God is like to so many people. But our God is fair, compassionate, just, an endless lover. You can't make him stop loving you. He has one thought on his mind that controls all of his thoughts. This universe will be secure 
only when all created intelligence is everywhere in this universe. Zillions of planets wherever. And all the angels, at least two-thirds of the angels, I'll, I'll bring along one-third too, that's okay, will be convinced sometime in the future that God was right and Satan was wrong. It's just that simple. And God is waiting, as we said last night, going through six risks in making this all come about. Because men and women on this planet are proof that his principles are exactly what he's been trying to say before sin began. You can trust a God like that. He's fair. He doesn't ask you to do anything that can't be done. And how do you know that? Jesus came to prove it. With the same liabilities you and I have. But that's not good enough. Because when was the last time you saw Jesus? When's the last time you heard him preach? And so he has given to the church his franchises. Remember last night? You buy into this local franchise and you are to do what home office, what, the, what, what that picture that Jesus has given us. This is the way you run your business, your franchise. Looking for many franchises to just multiply that good work that Jesus did. In short, God's gift of freedom is seen throughout the universe as the best reason for trusting him. Not because he's more powerful, not because he's wiser, but because you can trust what he says. That, to me, is a simple understanding of God. And I've, I've worked this through. When I was getting my doctorate, it was in this area with Catholic priests beside me and, and a whole array of Protestant representatives and, and some from Buddhism. And we were talking about these things for years, going through the various aspects. I'm so glad that I had an understanding of God that none of them had. And I was trying to share it in some way. I might give you a little story about that later on. That our systematic theology is like two trees growing up in the same fertile ground of freedom. And one tree is developing how God's principles are being developed. And branches here and there, I wish I had time to do that, is to show how these branches are showing more and more of this kind of a God. And the other tree with bitter roots are just showing how to outthink God over here and come up with new ways, of course, charging that he doesn't understand what he's really doing. It's nice, but it doesn't really work. This is what works over here. And all the bitter consequences of following these particular lines of argument. Each one trying to offset what God is saying. But I like another way of making this tree. Little acorn being the truth about God. And it's developing into a sapling. And we find that the sapling is is making its way until something called sin into the world. And it goes off this way, one branch here. God's branches go out here. And God has his way of dealing with sin. And Satan's anthropology and his soteriology and his eschatology are always offsetting what God is doing. And every single 
pitch that Satan has over here, every single way of looking at who man is, what kind of a, a personality, what kind of a, a, a beginning he had, is offsetting how God said, this is the way you really began. You didn't begin in sin. You began as Jesus began. You began with a free opportunity to look at life as your mother and daddy were trying to explain it to you. You become a sinner. You're not born sinners. That's a, that's a Calvinistic blanket that he's put on everybody. The way you are saved, well, there's all kinds of ways that the pagans, never mind the Christians who have messed it all up, will try to do this and go here, pay that, do anything to please God. Just please Him. Don't, Lord, don't overlook me. Look what I've just given to the church. Look at what I have done here. I spent a whole summer in a monastery trying to think about you. The world is full of those mistakes over here. But this tree keeps developing on this side with all the larger pictures of how God goes about making people ready to live forever. You can judge every man or woman, no matter how many degrees he has after his name, on what he thinks about eschatology. That is the end of things. How this world ends, how Jesus comes and when and for whom. If you want to figure out what a man is heading as you listen to a sermon or listen to a few sermons, you can tell if he's going down the wrong road or not just by how he thinks about the end of the world. Karl Barth, for example, for those of you who know your theology, Karl Barth has written a massive uh, systematic theology and we would wait uh, decade after decade as he finished up these pretty good insights in a way. He really had the person of Jesus Christ pretty good. But we're waiting for how he's going to finish this up with a whimper. These men and women do not have an exit strategy. Every controversy has to have an exit strategy. If you don't know the end, we call it eschatology, then what credibility do we have for anything else you've said? Check it. Check it for yourself. Find out how a person is really looking at the end of the world. Now, how does this all work? Now, you said I can go an extra ten minutes. That means you work, walk a little faster over there. Just for instance, oh, this is the fun part now. So a young person can understand this just in his high school years, shall we say, or even even grade school, many kids understand it. Um, say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. Ooh! Then he's not in me. He's not where the New Agers say he is, or the New Spiritualists say there is. That is, they're not the voodoo, frazzled New Agers. These are people who are running most of the Protestant churches today, not 15 years ago, but today, where you 
I'm so sure about where God... Just let's look at the center of life. We call it contemplative prayer. Go into the silence and listen. Go through the mantra. Say the word. Say the word. Don't let any other thought come in. Don't, especially, don't try to get a Bible text in your mind. I'm reciting just what is going on. I've written the book Truth Matters for some of you. You've read it already. I'm trying to analyze what's going on in the Protestant world today. God, who art in heaven, a person, hallowed be thy name. I'm going to talk about that a little later. Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Exit strategy. There's an end to all this. It's not going to be sort of into some kind of a mushy future. Thy will be done. Lord, your will be done in my life because I choose it and I'm just as anxious about it and I'm just as pleased and I'm just as eager to do my will, your will in me today as angels are in heaven to do your will. That simple prayer is telling God that you're willing to be as eager to honor him in your life today as he is honored in heaven. Please, Lord, I, I need your help today, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Whatever I need, thank you for supplying it. Just trust in you, Lord. Forgiveness, Lord, don't let me hold a grudge against anybody. I don't want to think ill of anybody, no matter what they're doing or saying to me. God, give me your way of looking at life. Lead me not to temptation. Don't let me go there, Lord. I've been there before. I've got habits, Lord, of thinking or doing. I don't want to go there, Lord. You're the only one that's going to keep me from doing it. Deliver me from evil. I want to be an overcomer, Lord. I don't want to live this kind of a life that I've sort of messed up. Deliver me from anything deep inside, deeper than I even know today. Deliver me from evil. Do we pray that prayer every day? That is the great controversy in a simple prayer. Just, just in the middle of the night when you can't sleep, start going through the prayer in such a way that you're adding to it personally what it means to you. It'll put you back to sleep. I have a deal with the Lord. My wife knows this. If I'm not going back to sleep, that's his fault, not mine. Because I tell him, Lord, don't let me go back to sleep until I understand what I'm talking about right now with you. You, you make it clear to me, and then you can let me go to sleep. That's the deal. It works. It works. The number of texts we just go through all the time like that. Now, when we talk about uh, hallowing his name, there's a chapter in the Bible that talks about his name being written in your forehead. Chapter 7, Revelation. Chapter 14. Chapter 22. The only people who are going to stand with the angels are those who have his name written on their foreheads. Whoa! So how do you go about doing that? Well, Revelation 7 talks about angels who are holding back the seven last plagues. 
not ready yet. Another angel comes down. Don't blow. Why? Look what a mess this world is in. Not yet. Why? Our people have suffered enough. We haven't yet been able to seal enough people to represent God yet. Hold back that west wind. Nuclear disaster. Hold black north wind. Some kind of avian flu. Hold back south wind. Madness that's everywhere. Why? God's people haven't caught on yet. God's people are not yet understanding what their mission is. They forgot it. They even forgot the message. Never mind the mission. When God's people are ready to receive the seal, that's it. When God has enough people, not that he needs numbers, but at least has to have a significant separation between those who have the seal of Satan or the seal of God, or otherwise the name of God and the characteristics of Satan. Just I think That's when Jesus will return. When God feels that he has the last person who is willing to accept him as their Lord forever, there's nothing more to wait for. Satan, it's yours now. I've had my chance, and I won. And if you don't think it, I'm right, okay, blow on all of them. Blow everywhere. And let's see who has more faith and more strength and more more ability to hide in whatever the what are the circumstances is in any one of the plagues you prove what you can do and I'll prove what I can do even during the plagues because he has sealed people they'll never say no to him again those are the people described in Revelation 14 man these are people without fault not because they have been without fault for years and years and years is because they finally grown enough to the place that tomato that's been developing in perfect plants, but not yet big enough to hold a green tomato, but it's a perfect plant growing. And finally, there's a red tomato that's absolutely juicy and ready to be eaten, the product of good seed, good nourishment. God's people are going to be like that, ready to be saved, ready to be ready to say yes to God forever. The name, I'll talk about that a little bit later on this afternoon, but remember when, some of you remember in 1982, when Tylenol was killing people? And that was a real hysterical situation. And Johnson & Johnson, well, they didn't wait for court cases. They weren't waiting to... They went right to work just like that. Within days, they called back 32 million bottles of Tylenol. And within a, a week or two, very quick time, they sent out Tylenol again. But now with that, that kind of a cap, you need a screwdriver and a, a wrench to open. And all the medication you have today has that some kind of a seal on it. You can hardly get into it. Because Johnson & Johnson was going to keep its name as number one in the health ministry. And they've kept it. How about Navigator, Ford Navigators in Firestone Tire? 
Remember that, well, the ad was several times over the last few years, but there was an article in Newsweek guarding the name job number one. And Ford was excusing itself and Firestone was blaming Ford and back and forth, so many millions of dollars. Some people have been killed because of whatever was happening with bad tires or with uh, configuration of the car. But the name, they have never recovered, never recovered. They lost their name. God has had his name hijacked for a long, long time. He's been smeared by Satan. And he doesn't fight back by talking louder. He said, I'll just show you what kind of a person I am. My name will be cleared. Jesus came down to clear God's name. But as we read last night, nobody on earth really knew that he had done it. He went back. We don't hear him anymore. But he said, I'm going to leave people in this world that will reproduce, who will reflect, represent what I was trying to do while I was here. And they will declare my name. My name will finally be cleared because it's to be found to be trustworthy and fair and, and the, the kind of name that you like to worship. 